Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. This show is all about sharing inspiration, uplifting stories, and practical career advice from innovative, original thinking, and pioneering women from around the world. You can find us here every second week, or why not sign up at don'tstopusnow.co so you never miss a show. Plus, you'd make our day if you could rate or review us. It really gives us a boost in more ways than one. It sure does. Now it's time for this week's show. Hello and welcome. After our fab first guest for 2024 last episode, we have another amazing conversation for you today. Absolutely. And I think it's safe to say that Marissa Warren is best described as a driven woman in a hurry. You can say that again, and we will explain why shortly. But first, Marissa is co-founder and managing partner of a unique venture capital firm called Aliavia. Aliavia is a California-based business focused on early stage investments. And, you know, this is the unique part, backing female founders only in both the US and Australia. Marissa's grown up in tech, spending the first 18 years of her career in enterprise software sales. She was in such a hurry to start working, she ignored her parents' urging to go to university and struck out to make her own path starting in Sydney. It's really turned out to be a bit of a theme for our first two guests this year. It has indeed. Which is really unusual. It is. In this episode, you'll hear how Marissa survives challenging times, including surviving being made redundant from big corporates on three separate occasions. What happened when Marissa met the Australian voice behind Siri in a New York elevator, and it was a human being, not just a voice, Marissa's advice to female founders to turn around the power dynamic with investors, and the differences she sees between Australian and American female founders. Now, before we jump into this great conversation, for transparency, we want to say that we are actually investors in Aliavia's first fund and are really big supporters of the investment purpose that combines supporting women founders and building incredible businesses. Yeah, we certainly do support that wholeheartedly. Now, without further ado, enjoy this episode with the driven and admirably impatient, Marissa Warren. Marissa, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Well, we're super excited to be able to talk to you about your journey. Obviously, we know you relatively well, but it's always interesting when you get into a podcast interview because you hear things that you would never usually know because you get to ask all sorts of questions. And one question that we like to ask all of our guests at the start of our podcast is if you were at a dinner party and you didn't know the people at the dinner party, how would you describe what you do? 
So I typically say I have a VC firm and we back female tech founders. So I find that that is always a really good opening line to questions of people asking about funding for female founders and talking about friends of theirs that are female founded tech businesses, et cetera. So it's a really good opener. Yeah, it's it's very pithy. So Marissa, we'll come back to your pioneering role in VC in a little bit, but I'd love to first take you back to your early days where I'm kind of guessing you were pretty determined and a young woman in a hurry. Just because after finishing school, I read that you ignored your parents urging you to go to university and instead moved to the city and jumped straight into the workforce. What did you do work-wise and what was driving you then to make that choice? Yes, always in a hurry. That's a good way of describing it. <laughs> um, and I quite often sort of think, where where do I get that drive I don't know. It's something that's just, it feels like it's inbuilt into my DNA. I actually come from a family of entrepreneurs on both my mother's and father's side, although my mother wasn't, she was in politics. Her expectation was that I would go to university and I got to the end of it and I said, you know what, that's not for me. I I had been working part-time at various sort of roles, whether it was flipping burgers or working in my grandmother's art gallery serving drinks. And I got this real appetite and hunger for earning my own money and doing my own thing. And I just felt that going to university for four years was like being in another institution coming out of girls' grammar on Canberra, like a bit of an institution. Yeah, right. (laughs) And it was, I just wanted to get out into business and start earning money. That's so awesome. I mean, it sounds like you really knew yourself well at an early age as well. Yes, I did. Although initially I wanted to build and manage hotels. And then I, at some point with my first job at a professional training and development company, I was exposed to tech and email and and this was in 96 and I just went, this tech stuff is really cool. (laughs) I I, I want a career in this. But now I'm curious because you spent 15 years in really big tech companies and so much of your DNA, Marissa, seems to be, as you say, kind of always in a hurry, driven. It seems like you were attracted to be entrepreneurial. So how did you not just survive, but I'm imagining you at times were definitely thriving because you were in the environment for a long time, but it seems a bit counterintuitive knowing who you are today. Yes, it's interesting. So I entered into tech in in, in 97, worked for, I mean, that first company that I worked for was Intenture Australia. And that's, I I was in a pre-sales accounting role. So it had a a couple of different functions there. And at that point, I was exposed to sales. And this is in the heydays of the 90s where the IBM servers and product, you'd be getting 40 points margin. Now I think they get a couple of points margin. So it was really, and salespeople were pretty much all order takers (laughs) because everyone was placing orders and they'd you know, drive his, you know, nice cars and go out to lunches. And I thought, oh, that looks like a great job. <laughs> you know, I should get into this sales. That attracted me. So I got into tech and then working in the supporting functions. Then I wanted to make that transition into sales. But getting into the larger organisations, 
so for all of them, I worked in sort of like the new division or the startup focus. So for SAP, they headhunted me because they had just acquired this product called Business One, which was for the SMB space. And they went, okay, we can't take our reps that sell, sell the multi-million dollar solutions into selling the Business One product. It's just not going to work because the Business One product would sell for tens of thousands of dollars versus multi-millions. So that that was a fantastic experience of really starting that business from, from the ground up. And we were sort of the business one team, to put it in perspective of how important we were to SAP when we first started, we didn't even have desks. Yeah, I can totally understand why you therefore thrived if you were sort of building something from the ground up within within an organization like that, because you you can build, but you've also got probably got resources that you can tap into. I'm curious because somewhere along the sales journey, I think you ended up in New York. How did that come about? Yes. So my mother's an American. When I was three months old, very, very lucky that she filed for for me for dual citizenship. So I have both American and Australian citizenship, which is very handy. So I, I think there was always this real desire to move over to the U.S., I mean, I think my mother always said, oh, you know, it'd be great for you to do university in, in in the US. Well, you know, it wasn't university, but for me, there was there was some calling for some reason to New York. And I'd only ever been to New York before I packed up my life and moved over for seven days on a <laughs> on a holiday. And I went, this is this is a fantastic area. And it 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 coincided with actually being made redundant at that point for the second time in my career. And I just went. I'm single. I have this opportunity to really rethink what I want to do with the rest of my life. I've always wanted to to get over to New York and I ended up moving there. I didn't know anyone. I didn't have a job. I didn't have an apartment. And I just, and I ended up living there for four years and I just built everything up from, from the ground up. And I've done that a few times in terms of like when I moved from well, Canberra to Sydney was easy, but Sydney to Melbourne and then back to Sydney again, but moving to these locations without that network, but particularly in the US, it was definitely because most of my family is in Australia. So I was certainly away from that support network. And what was the biggest challenge as you did that? So initially it was landing that full-time job. And then what I what I did is I, okay, so this isn't moving fast enough for me. I'm going to do some consulting work. So I started consulting. Was that in addition to your full-time job? No, no, that okay, was right. that was my full so consulting. Okay. And then the, the consulting game was getting a bit lonely because it's yes, you'd go out and sort of visit clients, but I didn't I didn't have a team and I wanted to be surrounded again in that sort of corporate environment. So then I went, you know what, I'm going to go out and I have a look at, at roles and I've reached out some some people in my network and I ended up securing a job at Workday. That would have been really, really fascinating, I would have thought, because it would have been at the time where they were relatively young, weren't they, Workday? Yeah, so three and a half thousand people and yeah. they were in hyper growth mode. Yeah. So it was, yeah, an insane experience. And at the same time that I started at Workday, I had started sort of thinking about this thing called Elevarco, 
which is a pre-accelerator for women tech founders, helping them get investment ready and to get funded. How did that come about? Because there you are, apart from the consulting you've been in, big corporates. What was it that um, instigated all that? Well, the, the first piece was Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In. And I started reading that and, and there was this section about why women sabotage other women. And I'd certainly experienced that in my time at corporate because being in tech for so long, I'm quite often the only woman in the room. And then when I'd reach out to women in, in leadership positions, either they'd see me as a competitive threat and maybe because of the my drive or they were old school and, and would say, no, I fought my way to get up to the top. There are a limited number of seats at the table. For women, you have to do the hard yards yourself. And I'm certainly not somebody that's afraid of hard work. But for me, it was, I'd look around and say, well, the men help each other. Mm. Even though they compete, they help each other. Why can't we as women? So reading that book had ignited a bit of fire in me. And then as New York, you know, it, it happens, you just meet the most amazing people there. So I'm in an elevator, Grand Central Station, and who walks in but it's the Australian voice of Suri. Yeah, yeah. So she's my dear friend, Karen Jacobson. And for some reason started talking about this, you know, Cheryl, I think I said, oh, have you read Cheryl Sandberg's book? And she's like, yes, I, you know, yes, I have. And we started talking and she had experienced what I had, but in the media and entertainment industry, because she's a speaker, voiceover artist, singer, songwriter. And what that evolved into is us doing a little video series, exploring that concept around why women sabotage each other. That went then on to doing a big event at the Harvard Club. And then after that event, people were coming up to us and going, Marissa, Karen, you, you're on to something. You're on to this great concept of women helping other women. And this was back in 2013, 2014. So then that evolved into launching Elevarco in 2015 in New York. Oh, what a great story. You know when people say to you, if you've got a dream, just take a step forward and then things start to happen. It sounds as if that's exactly what happened to you and Karen. That, that's exactly right. And I think nothing frustrates me more than seeing that people are, oh, I wish I could do that. And it's like, if you really want to do it, just do it. Don't let fear of time, resource, capability, anything hold you back because you will figure all of that stuff out along the way. Totally agree. I know, but I think you're quite unusual in that regard, Marissa. You know, how do you sort of encourage and advise women who, as you would see, no doubt, in even in founders sometimes, probably a lesser self-confidence or lesser ambition and scale perhaps than, than men sometimes because of this sort of self-doubt about capabilities or I haven't got that qualification? or How do you advise people to kind of overcome that? Well, it's, I mean, if, particularly if I'm looking at female entrepreneurs, because we used to get a lot of this coming through Elvarco. In fact, the key word that we found that resonated most with our entrepreneurs in our market messaging was confidence. So they wanted to be able to build confidence in pitching investors and closing them. And I'd always turn it around to them and say, yes, you you are selling to the investors, but at the end of the day, you are the prize. You are going to make them a boatload of money 
by backing your business because you know that it's going to be a success. So turn it, turn around the power dynamics. It's not, and it's not being arrogant about it, but it's just recognizing your own value and what you're bringing to the table and the fact that it's not just a, it's not a handout from an investor. They are investing in your business to make money. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a really good way of sort of framing it, isn't it? I, I think framing is often one of the most powerful concepts in increasing your confidence and it's finding what really resonates for you in terms of that framing. Yes. And it's just having lots and lots of conversations because the more you talk about it and the more that then you close investors, the more confidence that naturally builds and and the excitement and that momentum builds on itself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, yeah, you've got to do the hard yards, haven't you? Exactly. Is Elevaco still going? We ran our last program in 2021. Right, okay. Well, that makes sense because I think in 2020, you actually moved your focus onto what you're doing today, which is the VC fund Alia Via that you co-founded with Kate Vale. How did that come about? Because I think it was in the heart of COVID, at least that was when we started talking to you. Yes, it, it was. Just quickly on, just to round out Elevaco. So it ended up by the end of 21, we ended up having 175 women through that program that had raised more than 120 million and had three exits. Fantastic. Yeah. So when it's, and, and being a corporate results driven person, <laughs> that was important. I just didn't want to have a, a fluffy women's network. I wanted something that was really tangible and moving the needle. And the learnings from there was, yeah, okay. So the confidence piece. So it was that whole knowledge piece of helping those women understand what the investment process looked like and what investors were expecting. So we could do that, then it's amazing how the confidence soared. But it was also then connecting the women with those networks of power. The piece that was missing was being able to share in that value creation. So when they had those exit events, so that really sort of parlayed into starting the venture fund. So at the end of 2019, and this is it. This is the only time I've ever moved for a man. I say, moved to LA for my husband's job. He had this great opportunity come up to expand the business that he was working in in the US. And I said, well, it's really easy for me to to move over. I have dual citizenship. I was running Elevaco in in both the US and Australia. It was really easy. So. We did that, and that was at the end of 2019. And then, of course, the pandemic hit in March. And at that point, we, with the pandemic, we were on weekly calls with our alumni for Elevaco, and it's just like the funding had dried up overnight for female founders. And I was like, "This is just insane. These w- women are brilliant. They're just building great businesses, and some were needing funding that year." I'm like. I wish I had a venture fund. And that's when I reached out to Kate and I said, Kate, I've got an idea. I had met Kate a month after landing in LA in 2019 and we got on immediately and I started getting her already involved in Elevaco before I had this discussion. 
And within five minutes into my pitch, she's like, I'm in. (laughs) So then we decided it was June of 2020 that we were going to launch the venture fund. And for me as well, it was being, you know, somebody that's, you know, always in a hurry or quite impatient. I, I couldn't let, you know, a pandemic pass without doing something meaningful. And for me, it was like, this is the the next step in the evolution from, from Elevarco. And so we spent then the next six months building out the investment thesis and our back office getting established and then really started pitching for funding in, in 21. Aliavia has been created because there is such a dramatic disparity in funds raised by female founders versus male founders. Are we at about, is it 2% still of all venture, you know, investments uh, go to women founded organizations? Yeah, roughly about 2% for, for all female founders on the founding team. And then for mixed gender teams, it's circa around, I think it hovers around the 12 to 14%. God, still, it, you know, so so fourteen percent of all funds go to a mix. A mix yeah. that is crazy. It is absolutely crazy. It almost comes back to you know getting into the venture funding industry is right from the start, doesn't it? It's, that's the core thing because if if you've got no diversity in the funders, then you're not going to have much diversity in the people that they're funding. Exactly, exactly. And if we have a look at some of the major companies that have have transformed our lives, your Google, Facebook, Uber, Amazon, who are they all funded by? They're all funded by men. And so for the mission for our fund is that we re- we want to see more billion dollar businesses founded and led by women. Because we know when you have women in leadership positions, they generate on average 35% higher ROI than all male-led teams. Yeah, it's it's incredible, isn't it? So, yeah, keep up the good work. Now, I, I'm really curious because because Alivia is in this really unique position of investing in both Australian and US-based startups, have you noticed any significant leadership or founder-style differences between the Aussies and the Americans? Yes, so definitely from from the Australians, which is well suited for today's economic environment because it has been more of a capital-constrained market in Australia and founders have needed to generate revenue from day one and have revenue-focused business models from day one, then they've been much more sort of cost-efficient but also focused on on driving revenue than the US founders, which was typically growth at all costs. Hey, it doesn't matter if you or we want you to get to a million users, but it doesn't matter if you if they're not monetized now, we can figure out the monetization strategy later. That was the, you know, thinking back even up to a you know a couple of years ago before the downturn. Now it all has switched to more of the Australian approaches, you know, thinking about revenue generation from from day one versus down the line. So that's definitely helped the Australian founders in this current downturn. But then you do have, because of the competitive nature of the US, you do have this, I call it sort of like the US hustle, and it's finding those Australian founders that have that US hustle, that have that, you know, impatience and drive and 
will follow up and won't wait sort of like a week to follow up, you know, with sort of more of the Aussie style. They 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 have more sense of urgency and the competitive um, drive. Yeah, that's so interesting and that makes complete sense. You've been building up Ali Avia. You've got a small team of people now working with you. What's ahead? Where do you see it briefly in the next five years? Another fund or what's your sort of ambition for it? Definitely a um, multi-fund, multi-generational firm. So that's that's what we're building towards. We'll be launching Fund 2 this year and then building out the, the team as well. It's really exciting to see you build this team. Just on the record, we're investors in Aliavia and uh, love what you're doing, obviously. It's super exciting. Marissa, you know, obviously technology is changing really fast at the moment in particular, as you look at the pipeline of things coming and you think about, you know, you as an investor, what's the technology you're most excited about? Yeah, so I'm. we are actually seeing some really interesting deal flow come through at the moment. And of course, there, there is a lot of AI. And, and we've already invested in a couple of native AI companies even before you know, generative AI came came out and open, you know, with through open AI. So definitely AI, but we're also very conscious that they're actually delivering real value to the user through the technology that they've developed. And it's proprietary and it's also respecting copyright laws and and because it is a shifting landscape from a regulatory perspective. So that's that is an interesting from a technology perspective, AIs, I mean, I've never seen in, in my all of my years since I, I can't add them up now at the top of my head, but you know, being in tech since 97 and seeing all of these waves of adoption, whether it was from email and the internet through to handheld devices, through to the migration to the cloud, and and now with AI, I think AIs definitely the most disruptive technology I've seen and the adoption has been so much faster than any of the other technologies out there. So it's definitely going to become part of every, I, I see it becoming a part of every business. The industries that we like are fintech, health tech, the future of work and, and media and entertainment. Now turning back now to you and um, your career today, what event do you think has taught you the biggest lesson? I don't think it's an event. I think it's actually my mother. Her phrase is, or her saying is, there is always a silver lining and something better is coming around the corner. So this is how I navigate through challenging times. And as I said, I've been made redundant now three times out of the corporate space. So clearly I wasn't designed to, even though I was sort of working in entrepreneurial areas and always a top performer, I don't think I was designed to to be chained to the corporate space. And for me, each time that I experienced it, it's like, okay, there's a silver lining. I just don't see it at the moment. And I know what's coming up next is going to be even better than before. I think that has just helped me survive those those times. And in fact, every time it has been better. And it's led me to what I'm doing now, which is quite frankly, 
my dream job and I wouldn't want to be doing anything else. And I can see this, me doing this really. I, I joke with my husband. I said, yeah, I don't believe in retirement. Um, and I can see me doing this until the, the day that I decide to leave the earth. It's so true often, isn't it, that at the moment of sort of bad news, it's really hard to see the light, silver lining. But if you can have faith in the prospect of that being around the corner, that can make all the difference in the world to how you are in in that moment in time. It yeah. does. And it makes you think about things differently instead of coming from a position of fear and trying to problem solve. You're going, okay, I know this is going to work out. And, and it just helps you open your mind a bit more and, and not think coming from a place of fear. And that is a good segue to the, one of our final questions is, you know, what does success look like for you personally, Marissa? Success for me is, I think it's, it's multifaceted. It's from my home life because I have two beautiful girls. So it's funny that I have two girls and started, <laughs> I started the, you know, doing what I was doing before I had girls. For me, it's really, it is really important to be able to have that time with my girls. So we have our life set up where we've got a really great support system with our nanny and housekeeper. That means that you know, Stephen and I can be doing what we want to be doing from a from a job perspective and a career perspective while still having our family as well. So that balance is really important for me to be able to have that, to see my my girls thrive in, in what they're doing. Uh, and then for me, from a from a personal perspective, I mean I'm very, very goal-driven. And it's so for me for the success for this year is to have a successful at least first close for fun too. And it's so I'm I'm very driven on that, seeing that we get great investors on board for fun too. But then we continue to deliver and help our founders achieve success because at the end of the day, if our founders aren't successful in their business, then our fund is not going to be successful. Marissa, it's been so fascinating and so great to learn more about your backstory. If people wanted to learn more about Ali Avia or about you, where should they go? Yes, so they can either go to my LinkedIn profile. So Marissa, M-A-R-I-S-A, Warren, W-A-R-R-E-N. So you'll see me in the red jacket or our website, aliavia.vc. Great. And that's A-L-I-A via.vc, but we'll put it in our show notes as well for people. We will indeed. Marissa, it's been fantastic. I've loved this conversation and learning more about you. Thank you so much for um, spending the time with us today. We really appreciate it. Yes, thank you. And thank you for being such amazing investors as well. It, it really does mean a lot to us to have you supporting us. Well, we share a passion for seeing more women co-shaping our future society, I think, and supporting women. So here's to that. I like that. You can really hear Marissa's passion for changing the paradigm and prospects for female founders, can't you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it is astonishing that here we are in 2024 and still, still only 2% of VC funding goes to female founders. And then that stat that Marissa shared where only about 14% of the total amount of funding goes to founders and startups who at least have a woman on their founding team. It's I know, it's just completely crazy. 
and infuriating, isn't it? Yeah, and actually, it's still it's quite hard to believe. I mean, I know the figures are right, and I I know I'm familiar with them, but it still is in this day and age. Shocking. Moving on for something much more sort of positive, though, is I actually loved Marissa's positivity and can-do attitude when it comes to tackling things she's never done before and how she won't let fear or lack of experience or lack of resources stop her. Yeah, I know. She's pretty unique in that regard, isn't she? Yeah. I think more of us should take on that uh, yeah. approach. Just, you know, she one will figure it out. Yeah, and the other thing I loved was her silver linings philosophy. Yeah, that's true. That, um, I think that came from my mum. That's right. Yeah. It, it's a really great saying, and, you know, that sort of picture that she says, well, I don't know what the silver lining is yet, but I, I'm sure there is one. Yeah, brilliant. Well, that's this episode done and dusted. We'll be back in two weeks with yet another episode. In the meantime, stay positive, look for the silver linings and have fun. Ciao for now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 